Lord. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. You're so worthy of our attention. Lord, we just read the rest of Acts 23 and 24, and there's this encounter uh, that Paul had with Felix. And all the things that were leading up to it, Lord, show us, reveal to us, open our hearts to what you have for us this morning, Jesus. May you be glorified. May you be honored. God, and may our hearts be aligned with what you have for us, Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so there's this article in the Alliance Life magazine. Uh, if you don't get the Alliance Life magazine, it is a magazine that's, that's put out um, by the Alliance. And there's always great articles in this, um, these magazines. And then the one we just recently got, there was this article um, written about what is happening in Ukraine. And there's this incredible story um, that happened, and I want to read that to you this morning. It's by Emmy Doubles. And it says this, a Ukrainian woman feared for the lives of her two children while they stayed in their hometown due to the fighting. At the beginning of the Ukraine-Russian conflict, many were fleeing from her city to the next town over. She wanted to escape, but soon found out that the bridge of death was her only way out. Many had been shot to death on this bridge as they attempted to evacuate the city. But this woman could not let her children stay in such a dangerous place. And so they crossed this bridge. People on the other side rejoiced and marveled as this mother and her two children stepped off the bridge unharmed. But where's the man, they asked. Where's the fourth? There's only three of us, the woman replied. No, we saw you running across the bridge and there was a man with you. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Last week, we finished with verse 11 of Acts chapter 23. Paul uh, was being interrogated. Um, there, there was a bunch of Jews who were, who were causing riots and, and causing all of this to happen, and, and the Roman army um, secured Paul. The tribune secured him. Um, and, and we know that they were about to flog Paul when he confessed, saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. And so there's all this interaction going on. And in the midst of all this, uh, there's this incredible verse in verse 11 of 23 that just says this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify also in Rome. Paul was distressed. I guarantee you he was weary and tired. But Jesus was there to provide the strength necessary for him. Remember, Paul was walking in his calling to the Gentiles. And when he's called as a witness of the resurrection to proclaim that Christ is risen from the dead and that he is the one that everyone is longing for. Just like this woman and her children, and we, we see what just happened here, right? The woman, they, they had a fiery furnace experience. In the midst of her running across the bridge, God showed up and ran with them. And you might be saying, that's impossible. How could, how could that even happen? 
Church, we serve a God who created the world. And if he created the world, then he can do anything. And in that moment, the Lord stood by her as she ran, ran by her as she ran across the bridge. And here's Paul being reminded of the truth that the Lord is with us. The Lord is for us. The Lord isn't finished with us. If God has a plan for your life, trust knowing that he is going to fulfill that. That he's going to provide what is needed for that calling in your life to transpire, to come to fulfillment. God is always present. He wants to see us press forward in the gospel and is rooting us and, and, and is cheering us on by telling us to take courage. Know that for Paul, God had a calling on their lives, which allows us to be reminded of Psalms 31, 15 that says this, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and my persecutors. Church, no matter what we're going through, we can cry out and confess, Lord, my life is in your hands. I'm surrendering that to you. God, lead me on. Protect me. Guide me. And I can imagine for Paul in the midst of his defense and trials, this is what he was praying. Resting in the promises that God has for him. While we don't always get the visions like Paul did, God still speaks. And that is through his inspired word. Right? And we have what God has given us here in Luke as a reality to that. John Calvin said this, This is the whole of what we should seek in the scriptures to be well acquainted with Jesus Christ and the infinite riches which are contained in him and which are by him offered to us from God, his Father. Church, if the Lord promised to stand by Paul to take courage, that same promise stands for us today. God is calling us to take courage in the midst of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of everything we have going on, God is promising to be present. Maybe you're here today and you're just having difficulties with relationships with, with your children or with your grandchildren. And maybe you're here and, and you just got some, some life-altering news. Maybe you've been walking through a process with doctors for a very long time. Maybe you just recently lost someone. Or maybe you lost a job. Whatever it is, if you are a follower of Jesus, God promises to be present in your life, to be close to you as you walk through that, as you care for that, as, as you wrestle with everything that God is doing. And just like here, God promised Paul one thing. Take courage. Because as you were my testimony in Jerusalem, I will get you to Rome, I promise. And you will be my testimony there as well. And so as we read today's text, and as we process it, know this. May we continue to abide in Christ. May we trust in the sovereignty of God's plans. May we place our hope in the resurrection, and may we turn to Christ as our ultimate redeemer and judge. How is the Lord going to fulfill his promises? How does Paul live out his Holy Spirit life in the midst of this defense? How does this impact our lives? And so, as we read the text again, let's make some observations. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. 
There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food. So we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And so we have here, in this passage, notice at the beginning of the passage, there is no mention of Jesus, no mention of the Lord, no mention of God, clearly most of this passage. But earlier we sang a song that said this, the Lord is the way maker. And if God is the way maker, regardless of whether or not we see God or Jesus spoken of, we can know that God is present. God, you, you made a promise to Paul that you were going to get him to Rome. But now we see here, we see this plot, right? We see these, these Jews that are, that are looking to take Paul's life to the point that they would go through great lengths to, to create a, 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 a band of, of people who are waiting for Paul to pass through to them. And so these Jews, they go to the council, they go to the Sanhedrin, they go to the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they're like, hey, you're going to bring Paul to us. And by the way, we're not going to eat or drink or do anything until we have taken his life. Church, they could be waiting for a very long time. Because if God is for Paul, and God promises to bring him, well, then they're going to be hungry. So maybe, maybe after a while they're waiting and, and they get hangry, and so maybe they grab a Snickers as they wait, right? We don't know, but we know this, is that God promises to get them through. And so how does he do this? How does God promise? How does God protect? In the midst of all of this, we know that God is sovereign, that God is all, all, all over the place, that God is present everywhere. And so how does God make sure that Paul continues on this journey towards Rome? Well, let's look at this. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barrack and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, hey, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me about these things. And so here, uh, we, we don't know much about Paul's family, but apparently he has a sister. And he has a nephew. We don't know how his nephew overheard this conspiracy going on, but here are the couple of things we know. Paul's nephew witnessed a corrupt religious leadership. Because the people, these Jews, went to leadership. And, and by all means, it looks like the leadership sided with these Jews. Hey, you know what? If you guys are going to get rid of Paul for us, great. And so Paul's nephew overheard this. And, and 
And, and this interesting thing about how, how Roman citizens, when they're in prison, all the freedom they have, like these people can come and go. And so the nephew went to Paul somehow, some way, and told him, hey, listen, there's some people trying to kill Paul. And the tribune, which at this point, we'll see later, he's not really named at all up to this point. We just know him as the tribune. We know him as a Roman leader. And he says, you know what? Tell no one about this. And so in this moment, right, we, we have uh, this ambush waiting to happen. But remember I said, but God, right? God shows up in some interesting, pr pretty interesting ways. And so in this moment, we see first and foremost that God uses Paul's nephew to protect him. Paul's nephew somehow overheard this conversation and he was able to report it and let Paul heads up. Just so you know, there's people waiting to kill you. And so how does the tribune respond? Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote this letter to the effect. Claudius Lysias, now we have a name for this tribune, and now we know who he is, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of the law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so now, second time, right? Paul's nephew reports it. And now you have the tribune, Lysias, who is now making a way to protect Paul. And how does he make a way to protect Paul? What does he set in order? An army. I mean, to protect one man, a Roman citizen, they will go through great lengths to make sure that a Roman citizen gets the justice, gets the gets the, the, the trial that he deserves as a Roman citizen. And so here is Claudius Lysias, who was like to his soldiers, to his centurions, which are like the overseers of the Roman guards. He says, hey, listen, I want you to get for me 200 Roman guards, 700 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That is 470 people to bring Paul to the governor of Felix to continue on in this trial that Paul, as a Roman citizen, gets to have. Claudius was a large part of the Roman military force. He was a free Greek who worked his way up through the ranks of the Roman army and at some point paid an official of Claudius's government to receive Roman citizenship. And so he wrote this letter to Felix to summarize all these things that were happening and why Paul is being sent to the governor of Felix. He was even kind enough to prevent, to give Paul his own mount. I mean, any governor, you could have made him walk. But instead, they give him a horse to mount up on to be able to ride to Felix the governor. That's pretty incredible. 
And this is another evidence of God and his sovereign promises keeping them. And so we know that Paul was brought to Antipater, and it was there that the threat of an ambush diminished. And so they felt that it was safe to, to, to send back the, the, the 200 soldiers who were on foot. And what continued on were the 70 horsemen to bring him to Felix. And so they thought they were moving a prisoner. We know it in reality, they were moving God's preacher. So God continued in his promises to say, you know what, Paul? You're going to be my witness. And I'm going to get you there. Trust in my promises. Trust in my sovereign will. And so this letter gets to Caesarea. And we know we continue on with what? God planned. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. And so on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Caesarea, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so here, Paul makes it by the soldiers to Felix the governor, and Felix is reading this letter. And I can imagine this whole time as, as Felix is reading this letter out loud, Paul is just laughing. Because we know that Claudius Lysias was, was left out a few details in, in Paul's way of getting here. You know, he, he said, well, I, I saw that the Jews were trying to get him, so I, I took him and I immediately sent him to you. We know this whole time, he's, Paul's laughing, going, they tried to flog me. They tried to hurt me. It took a little while before they found out that I was a Roman citizen. And so Lysias is trying to get on good graces with Felix by telling him maybe what Felix wants to hear. And we all know that what Lysias was saying was just a bold lie. Claudius was trying to save face by saying he rescued Paul from the mob because he found out that he was a Roman citizen. Neglecting to add the fact that he sees Paul and to find out why he was being accused and attacked and was going to flog him, this is when he found out he was a Roman citizen. And, and, and I was asked this week, why did Paul wait this long to tell that he was a Roman citizen? Well, we don't know how long it took for Paul to be guarded from the Jews, taken by the soldiers, and then attempted to be flogged all in one thing. Was it seconds? Was it minutes? Did, was Paul just waiting for a very climactic moment just to say, by the way, you can't do this, I'm a Roman citizen? You know, in the movies, we see it all the time, right? Someone's about to attack someone, and they're like, wait, 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 wait. I'm a Roman citizen. And so we don't know, but we do know is that, is that Lysias was, was, was semi-lying to Felix. But the one thing that Claudius did get right was the fact that Paul was being accused in regard to Jewish law, but wasn't charged with anything deserving of death or imprisonment. And so he was brought to Caesarea, which was a harbor in the Mediterranean Sea, right? And so now he's on the harbor, right? And, and to get to Rome, he has to go by boat. And so now he's actually on the harbor being able to eventually get to Rome. And this would have been a great port to get, to get to Rome. It would have been the headquarters for the Roman military forces. And I can imagine Paul, every step of the way, going, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for getting me here. And the truth of the matter is this, is that this was all in God's sovereign plan to get Paul to Rome. God used the crooked Claudius Lysias for his will 
God used the soldiers for his will. And we can know this, is that the Lord is our way maker. And we are called to trust in his holiness. He will fulfill his promises. If God promised Paul that he was going to get him to Rome, if God promises us that he will continue to work in us until the final end, we can trust knowing that he will make a way, even if we don't see him present, even when we don't feel him, even when it seems like God is not anywhere near us, we can trust in his sovereign plan and his sovereign will for our lives. And so one way he accomplished this is through difficult circumstances and people. God uses what the enemy meant for evil for his good. God uses people and circumstances to fulfill the promises. Think back to Genesis when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. What did he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And God provided Joseph to be over leaders. God empowered Joseph to, to interpret dreams. In the end, God used Joseph to protect his family from the, from the famine. And we can trust knowing that God will use leadership to accomplish his will for this world. While we're sitting here freaking out about the leadership, whether it's in the White House, whether it's in the government, whether it's on a local level, while we could freak out going, they're making idiotic decisions. We can know and trust that God puts people in leadership and he will use them to accomplish his plan and his will for us and in this world. God is still in control. He is still on his throne. Nothing is going to change that. And so God uses people like Claudius and he uses people like Paul's nephew and he uses people like military to accomplish his will for our lives. Listen, sometimes God uses a small child Sometimes he uses a Calvary, but ultimately Christ is on the throne. And we can trust him no matter what is happening. We can trust in God's sovereign will for our lives. And we can know this, is that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Christ comes to give life. And if Christ comes and promises to give life, no matter what we go through, we can find life in Christ. And I can imagine Paul is waiting and he's thanking God, and he's having trust that God is doing things. And in this point, not once did Paul waver from his heavenly citizenship, and not once did he belittle or, or call names to leadership. Paul was an honorable citizen, just like we're called as American citizens to be an honor, honorable citizen reflecting the values of Christ in this world. There's no need to be afraid or worry about America. Our trust is in God's sovereignty not the people that are in office. The second that we begin to worry and freak out and try to do things ourselves is the second that we have taken our eyes off the hope of the one who has all things under control. Paul was being protected by God. Do we truly believe Paul when he wrote in Romans 8.28 and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Church, do we trust that if God has a purpose for our lives that it's going to be good for us? Do we trust that no matter what happens, God will make all things work together for good to those that love and care for him? And so let's continue on. How does God and his sovereign will continue to accomplish his purpose? And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman or a lawyer, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... 
Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this whole gratitude, but to attain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to proclaim the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything in which we accuse him. And so the Jews also joined in this charge, affirming all these things were so. And so here, Ananias, the high priest, comes down with his posse. He brings his crew, right? Some of the lawyers, and by the way, he brings a lawyer with him. This lawyer, Tertullus, would have, would have been probably the highest of high lawyers. It would have been probably the, the best lawyer that money can buy. And they used him to come down and make this case against Paul. Right? And Ananias, again, he is trying to, um, he's trying to get on the good graces of Felix. And so, again, here's a man that lies again. He says that Felix uh, loves peace and that Felix is doing all these great reforms and all these things are happening. But if you study history, we know that Felix was corrupt, that Felix actually caused many contentious many arguments, many fights. This would have been further from the truth because Felix's reign was marked with unrest and violence. And, and, and Ananias was just trying to get on the good graces of Felix going, hey, thank you for all you're doing. And Felix is actually bad. He's actually very hard. He was cruel and licentious. And while in Judea, Felix, Felix would have tracted to Drusilla, which we'll see as a wife. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. But here's the thing. She was married to another person, which made no difference for Felix because Felix is a homewrecker. He actually caused this woman to divorce her husband and marry her. And so this period of his rule was marked by feuds and disturbances. But nevertheless, this skilled attorney knew that peace was a major Roman value, and, the, and he commended Felix to, that he was bringing it. Flattery is just dripping from this lawyer's mouth. And he brings all these accusations against Paul, that Paul is a public nuisance, that he was a political agitator, that he caused riots, that he caused all these things that were happening. But listen, in actuality, it was the enemies of the gospel who stirred up these riots. Second, he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Listen, the reason he called him here that he was a sect of the Nazarenes is this, is that the actual word for Christian is actually an offensive word. They, they called people Christians in a derogatory way, and the Jews wanted nothing to do with that. So he says, hey, here's a ringleader for the sect of the Nazarenes who follows the Jesus of Nazareth. And it was kind of a little better term to use instead of Christians. But he says that, the, that this man, they disturbed the Jews in the exercise of their religion. That he introduced new gods that were prohibited by the Romans. And that he attempted to profane the temple, a crime which the Jews were permitted to punish. But notice here, do you guys notice that it goes from 6 to verse 8? If you read your Bible, there is no verse 7. In many modern translations, there is no verse 7. 
And some of them, like the King James, there is. But here's the thing we got to understand. Why is this? Well, it's based off of a Greek translation. I, I, I believe the NIV, the, the ESV, the NASB, they, they don't have this verse technically included. And if it is, it's in parentheses. And so before we get off on the tangent of what translation is better, we got to understand that verse 7 wasn't significant. And so it's not a verse that we got to look at going, man, what did that verse actually say? But here's what it said. But the commander of Lysias came and took him from us with much violence. And so 6 and then verse 8, ordering his accusers to come before him. So they brought this accusation, and even the Jews were joining in with this. The tense court scene set. There's some wild accusations against Paul, and now he's given a response, a chance to respond. Listen, those who oppose Christ will go to great lengths to oppose the kingdom, and we should always be prepared for such spiritual attacks. Paul is being attacked. Proclaiming the gospel is being attacked. The resurrection of the dead is being attacked. All these things are happening. And here's what we need to understand, is that the enemy will try to cause people to believe lies and even attempt even get you to believe lies. And so the enemy is using all these people, and God is using it around for his good. All the enemies of the gospel are causing all these lies to happen, and they're trying to get all these Roman officials to believe in their lies, to believe that Paul is guilty, that he deserves death. All these things are happening, and God's like, hold up. You're not going to fool me, Satan. You're not going to fool me. I'm going to use this for my good. Remember Job, right? Satan says, have you considered your servant Job? And God says, go for it. Because in the end, I'm still going to reign. I'm going to have authority. I'm going to be sovereign. And so here's Paul waiting for his opportunity to defend himself. And how does he respond? With calmness and courage. And so our only hope, what we're going to see, is found and secured in the resurrection of Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, Hebrews 6. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so Paul, is, when he gets a chance, he replies and says this, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul doesn't use any tactic. He just says, you know what? I know that you've been judged for a while, and I'm glad that I get to make a response to you. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And so he's like, I can't cause a riot. I've only been here for 12 days. It's not enough time. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But to this, I confess that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the unjust and the just. And so I take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after seven years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or turmoil. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul begins to explain, I mean judge because of the way that they call this sect or they call a cult. 
Keep in mind, again, that the term Christian was only for Gentiles as a mockery. And so Jews even tried to avoid that term. Paul doesn't use words to flatter up. But he says that he is a follower of the way. That even Galileo would confirm was a fulfillment of Judaism. Paul not only claims to be innocent, but he also claims to have faith that is in accordance with the fundamental outlook of Judaism. A belief in God, the scriptures, future judgment, and the importance of holiness. Paul is saying, look, I worship the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. But I have a greater picture of clarity and reality. Paul is connecting the New Testament to the Old Testament. But I love what he says. He says, having a hope in God that one day we will be resurrected. We can trust in promises that God and the Hebrew writer promises when we said we have an anchor for our soul. Paul is saying, look, my conscience is clear. I'm not trying to hide anything from man or from God. I am honest with God and the people around me. But here's the one thing. Paul is saying, listen, I have a clear conscience. And so church, here's my question for you. Are you living with a clear conscience towards God and man? Are there things in your life that are unconfessed in your life? Are you trying to hide something in your life? Are you pretending it's not a problem, but it is a problem? Are you open to praying this morning, God, is there anything in me that is not pleasing to you? Anything in my thoughts, my desires, my actions, my life right now that is not glorifying to you? I want you to cleanse me, to purify me, to make me holy, Lord, to live with a clear conscience towards God and towards others. Take note, again, right? He's saying, hey, I have this clear conscience. I'm here. Take note of his seamless transition to the Christian faith. It's an excellent reminder to look for ways in your daily conversation to make gospel transitions as you talk with people. Look, they found me in the temple cleansing myself. And the Jews who found me, they should be here, right? His accusers weren't even there, right? And here's the thing. If you're in Christ, there is nothing the world can accuse you of. If you're in Christ, it's Christ's righteousness that has covered you. It's his blood that has declared you innocent. It's his blood that has justified you, and there's nothing that the defense can come against you. Paul's response to the charge of temple destruction was actually the opposite of what he came to do. He came to give alms, to purify himself like the Jews do. Now, all these people weren't even there to prove himself. And this is what we need to understand is that the resurrection is indeed central to the Christian faith, which allows the sufficiency of Christ's death, the sufficiency of his lordship, and his inevitable return as judge. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Felix knew the way. He understood it. Put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I would decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his meetings. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the covenant of judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given by him from Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so here's Paul saying, you know what? I'm here because of the way. 
I'm here because I preach of the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. I'm here even though my accusers aren't here and there's nothing you can actually do here. And he's doing all this with Felix and he's preaching about righteousness and he's preaching about repentance. And and, and this conversation that he has with Felix is uncomfortable because no one actually wants to be pointed out for their sins. No one actually wants to be called out, called to repentance, realizing that they're actually living a life that is contrary to scriptures. And so Felix kept putting him off. He says, you know what? I'm done with this conversation. I'm going to wait till your accusers come down. And so he kept on it. And Paul, again, had liberty for friends to come and care for his wounds and care for him. But this kept going on and on. And some days have passed, and he brought his wife, who was Jewish, right, the one that he, he caused uh, uh, to have an affair with. Um, and Paul heard him speak about faith in Christ. And he kept doing this. And he kept reasoning with Felix about righteousness, which is holiness, and self-control, which is a sinless life, and the covenant of judgment. Look, listen, we're all going to be judged. Are you going to be judged? Would you rather be judged in your sinfulness or would you rather be judged with the blood of Christ covering you? And the whole entire time, Paul is having these conversations with Felix saying, hey, Felix, you're a sinner in need of repentance. You need to repent of your sins. You need to strive after God's holiness, after what God is doing. And the whole entire time, Felix is like, okay, I'm done. And then he sends for him again. And this happens for two years, all these conversations. But we don't know if Felix repented. We don't know any of these things. All we know is this, is that Felix was corrupt to the point that he was even hoping that Paul would bribe him and keep giving him money. He knew that Paul, I guess, had some money, and so he's like, you know, I'm hoping that Paul would just continue to pay me. And he kept putting it off. Felix was a people pleaser, and so to please the Jews, he kept keeping them in prison until his accuser would come, but Lysias apparently never came. And so this happened for two years. Listen, the truth of Jesus, of Jesus only, and submitting one's life to the lordship of Jesus will continue to offend people because the gospel is offensive. But we should be more concerned about offending Christ than anything else. We should be more worried about offending Christ by not preaching the gospel, but not living a life that is glorifying to Jesus than actually offending human beings when we call them out because of their sin and we call them to repentance. We're called to do it with grace and, and, and gentleness, but we are called to live the gospel out. We're called to preach it. And the gospel is offensive because it causes us to come face to face with our issues and our brokenness. And we're called to surrender that over to Jesus so that Christ can clean us. And it causes us to actually repent, to acknowledge that we are wrong. And nobody actually wants to do that because they want a life that is all about themselves, not about Christ. And then second, you say that when you repent of your sins, you should live all for Jesus, not for yourselves. That is offensive in and of itself as well because we want to control our own lives. And so Paul the whole time is having these conversations in prison. He's resting on the sovereignty of God. He's standing upon the hope of the resurrection. Why? Because no matter what happens to us as believers, what can man do for us if God is for us? If our eternal security is found in him, and when we accept Christ, we can see the joy that is at the finish line. What is this world going to do to us? 
What is man going to do to us? What is it to suffer for a very short period of time knowing that God's plan of of giving us a, a glorified body and a future where there is no sin, no pain, no cancer, no suffering, no relational disputes, none of that. And we get to live eternity with Christ, knowing that one day if we're in Christ, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But right now, to feel like Paul is saying, you're going to face Jesus, and he's going to say, depart from me, for I've never knew you. God will judge. What judgment do you want? What is your desire? Is your desire to know Christ and him only to preach of the resurrection? Are you committed to living a life that displays his goodness and his grace? Are you willing to allow Christ to come in to to sanctify you, to cultivate your heart so that you can bear fruit for him and his glory? Paul spent all this time in prison, and I can imagine the whole entire time he was praising the Lord for protecting him. He was praising the Lord with the truth that God has not forgotten him and God has not forgotten you, and he is still in control of everything that happens. So take courage in the midst of your cancer. Take courage in the midst of your relationships. Take courage in the midst of of job loss. Take courage in the midst of losing someone. Take courage in the midst of maybe your crops didn't produce as well this year. Take courage in your job being hard right now. Why? Because God is present. God is sovereign. Our hope is found in the resurrection, not in people. And we can trust in knowing that God is in control of our lives. May we keep calm in the midst of the most stressful situations. May we find ourselves in God's arms continually every day. Let's pray. Jesus, as the worship team comes forward, Lord, you are good, you are wonderful, you are amazing, you are holy, you are just, you are great. Lord, we all go through hardships, we all go through things in our lives that are weighing us down, but we can trust knowing that in your sovereign plan, you already have it all figured out. God, we can't always see it, but when you do reveal your will to us, God, it is incredible to know that we are in your hands. Paul found comfort And that allowed him to keep preaching the resurrection. God, may you be glorified. May you be honored. Amen.